Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. My name's Steve W. It's the 26th of January at the moment, and the markets haven't quite closed in the US, but Steve and I think there's plenty to talk about already. So we've got mostly our favourite sets of earnings from this week. One's from Europe, one's from the US. Not much from the UK, but UK investors might well be interested anyway. Uh, Steve, it's been a, I think it's been a really interesting week. Uh, this week in markets and in portfolios and so on. Much more interesting than it's been in my own actual life. But how have you been getting on? Pretty good, Steve, yeah. Uh, uh, in the markets, I've had a pretty stellar week. Um, it's one of those weeks where you're just glad to be in the market, really. Um, so after uh, we spoke last week, I put some um, money to work and I said basically did what I said I was going to do and I bought a decent sized position in LVMH. Um, and I ran it alongside my carrying position. I actually bought more carrying as well because I was looking at the two of them thinking uh, that was that was just a decent deal, uh, that kind of price for me, great valuation. And I did the same. I increased my position in Doc Martens by about another 50% as well, um, and that uh, those three uh, today, Steve, have been my best performers. I've got LVMH up about 13%. Uh, Kering up just over six and a half percent, and Doc Martens is up four point two seven percent. But it's actually even better than that, Steve. So just just as an overview, that's point seven percent on the day. On the week, uh, I've got Doc Martens up just under twenty percent, LVMH up seventeen point two four percent, ASML up sixteen point sixteen percent, Kering up ten percent, Fortera up nine percent, Fortinet up eight and a half percent, Money Supermarket up six and a half percent, Right Move up six and a half percent. DS Smith up 4.71, Euronext 4.49, Zender Group 4.12. And I mean, I'm going through the companies. I'm missing out the people now who are up 3, 2, and 1% in a week, which is a great week's return, really. Um, overall, my portfolio on the week uh, is up about 2.7%, which is really, really good. I'm, I'm obviously over the moon with that. I've just put some more money in as well, uh, but not actually bought anything at the moment. So going going great guns steve really really happy with where we are um you got anything like that in yours that's a lot of stuff that's up isn't it um i had been i could have told you Doc martin's was going to go up by the way um avid readers of my motley fool writing stuff of which there are i think none uh would know that it's a stock i've been talking about a little bit over the last month or so and i've been attempting to try and scale my way into it with some loose uh cash and the odd dividend and some spare change and so on so naturally the thing is going to run off before I get a chance to really go doing that. Uh, I actually don't think it's sort of terrible here. I know it's up 20%, but if you look at that company's chart, uh, especially since it's IPO, which was only about 2018 or so, if memory serves, um, it's down and to the right, but barely to the right. It's mostly down uh, from where it kind of came out. And and if you dig into that company a bit more, you'll see that there are a bunch of reasons for that. Some of them are very good reasons, to be honest, and some of them are less good reasons. But um, I could have told you that was going to run off before I managed to scale my way into it properly at the kind of number that I was um, hoping to uh, to reach, which now gives me a sort of interesting situation to be in, really, because I was looking at UK 
shares this week and I saw Doc Martin's pushing higher and sometimes when it's the case that you have something that goes up it pulls other things with it a little bit either within its sector or even within the broader market which is not crazy because the attractiveness of anything to buy depends at least in part on the attractiveness of everything else so if something becomes um, massively expensive then everything else becomes kind of cheap by comparison if it really really uh, moves probably more than you're looking for from docs in this week but Actually, everything else of mine sort of largely sat still in the UK part of my um, investments. Nothing else had a really huge running away week outside of my ISA. I'm actually up uh, 3.1% this week, which puts me ahead of the FTSE, uh, the S&P and the Vowarrel. Um I'm not really sure which one of those I benchmark against. Probably none of them is the answer. And hey, they'll probably come and pull me back in fairly soon. But the reason for that is uh, two big US banks have done quite well this week. Neither of them reported earnings this week, actually. But Bank of America and Citigroup are both up five and a bit percent. They are, in that order, the two largest holdings um, in my ISA. Uh, and therefore, they pulled everything sort of fairly well higher, despite other things sort of dragging their heels along um, a little bit. So I, I was kind of, yeah, I thought it was interesting um, on that one. It feels like there's a bit more feels like market sentiment suddenly shifted back to the positive side again uh a bit steve do you do you get that or that's how it feels to me anyway do you get that sense and if so do you trust it um so uh, i've said it a few times already but the sayings usually are that you know stocks take the stairs up and the elevator down but it seems like they've been taking the stairs down and the elevator up recently doesn't it um and it's funny how fast things have have uh really sort of turned on you um, I mean, I'm, I was just looking at Doc Martin's up 19% on the week, and I, I hadn't even realized, Steve, I'm actually in the green on that stock now, um, which makes me think like that has been an, a, just a monumental turnaround. But we were only saying this time last week, I think I'm down double digits on Doc Martin's. I think I'm getting for 15% down on Doc Martin's, and, it, and it's turned around um, already. We, we sort of doing that young uh, investor kind of thing, question that just falls out of your mouth of how low can this thing go it's like 700 million market cap or something um but yeah i guess the answer was 700 million steve uh and it seems to have uh have, have spun around pretty quickly so yeah there's definitely a more positive sentiment uh to the market um you can definitely see um just a little bit of optimism uh is returning to the market and what a strange time for it to return though when everything's at all-time highs and people all of a sudden are start, uh, feeling positive about it i mean i sent you a uh, a link in the week, Steve. I I, I quite often um, message Steve with that, who you know, highlighting a person who I think is potentially the stupidest person on the internet. Uh, and I um, I found one where somebody had highlighted all of the um, the major crashes that have happened in the last like hundred years or something. And he'd said, "Look, every time it collapses, we're at all time highs." And he just marked all of the crashes that were at all time highs. And he said. Doesn't this make you think? And you're thinking like, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if we get to all-time highs, eventually when it falls off all-time highs, that's, you know, that's just what that chart is going to look like. It doesn't mean it's going to happen because it's got to all-time highs. It, it just it happens because, you know, stocks are going up until they, they don't go up anymore. And it was one of the strangest things to see highlighted I've ever seen. And the dismay in Steve and I was fa uh, our faces when we found out that this guy had over 100,000 people who follow his uh, his, uh, his account. It was, uh, yeah, it was tough for us, wasn't it, Steve? It was a tough week. Tough week for the lowly content creators who were just trying to speak a little bit of sense. 
yeah, that's how you know when a market's reached its top. Uh, you know because you look backwards two years later and realize that was the top, basically. Uh, that chart conveniently ignored, same point you said, but a slightly different way, the fact that there were several times on the way up to those peaks that the market was at all-time highs, and it didn't go down after those bits. It kept going upwards. And the real if it was as straightforward as being like, see, look, you just sell it at this bit, and then you buy it at like this bit. Um, this is why we don't have like past options. I've discussed this before, I think, of, of why you can't have like, um options to buy things i suppose because they would always just have a fixed price because everyone knows what they'd be um worth but yeah that was a um that was a particularly galling bit of pointing at a chart not really in any kind of meaningful technicals way to be honest i i'm not a massive fan of technical analysis but i would say in fairness to the technical analysis guys i mean they have more thoughts going on than that uh rather than this is the top because it went down afterwards um, I'm not sure I necessarily add much more, but they think a lot more carefully uh, than than that. It's um, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? That like I don't know what two weeks ago maybe there was no one in the world who owned Doc Martin shares and was green on them um, because all it had done was go down from there, and that's what all time lows means, right? That like anybody who owns the thing is at the very, very, very best flat. Uh, because they bought them literally that minute and the price hasn't gone anywhere. Anyone who bought them even a minute ago, everyone in the world is seeing red on their Doc Martens thing. Um, and, and now you're green, which is like, you know, that was illegal for like years, uh, being green on a Doc Martens stock. To be fair, you didn't buy it for years. There's good reason for that. Um, I think one of the reasons, by the way, that the market's looking more strong, I'm a bit worried, uh, to be honest about this. I'm seeing earnings coming through stronger than expected in quite a few uh, places here. And uh, that's good for markets. Things are getting pulled higher by other things. Not across the board. I saw Intel come out today as disappointing, and that's gone down again. Um, and I will get to Tesla, which has also been sort of disappointing. I'm not really sure it's pulling much with it, but um, that's also been a, a fairly underwhelming effort this time. But I'm a bit wary that earnings coming through stronger here convinces central banks both in the uk and the us that actually we don't need to cut interest rates because things are going okay corporate earnings are reasonably strong let's keep rates where they are and grind the recession uh, not the recession the inflation uh thing down to to where we really want it to be rather than where we might settle for it uh being and i think that's i'm wary of that because i think markets continue to price an interest rate cut a little bit which gets made less likely by Strong earnings, uh, effectively, is my worry here. So I'm, I'm not selling anything, at least not at the moment. Anyway, um, I, I worked out what my price to sell my smaller than I would like stake in Doc Martens would be, and it's a long way from where we are at the moment. It's got a lot, uh, hell of a lot higher to go. I'll let you know when we start getting anywhere near it. But um, I, I'm not selling it, but I don't massively trust this one. I think um, is my is my thought. Yeah, fair enough. I. Um... I don't know at the moment. I'm I'm sort of in that mentality where I don't really mind if I have to trust it or not. I'm just going to keep going and uh, and see where we end up. Um, I've got about I think about fifteen hundred pound left to spend. It was the the annoying thing about that is is that I had that money ready to put in LVMH last night. Uh, I had it in in time for the market to uh, the market was still open, and I looked at LVMH and I thought, right, I'll get that bought. I'll just get. The £100 I need to get into Olivia's SIP in, and that involved me having to call Hargreaves Lansdowne, and I missed the end of the market. So I was – and to be fair to the the, the 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 chap who I spoke to at Hargreaves Lansdowne, he was very helpful, and he was he did it as fast as he can. But it's such an archaic system. Um, 
uh, I also got the advice that uh, it's actually, he said he thinks it's uh, it's against government policy to be able to bank transfer into a SIP. Um, I'm not sure. Oh, no, it was an ISA, sorry, to bank transfer into an ISA, he said. And I sort of said, I, I, I've never heard of any such policy. That's your policy. That's not government policy. Uh, I think you're getting mixed up. But um, yeah, uh, angry, but not that angry, I suppose. Uh, there'll, there'll be other opportunities down the line for me to um, for me to, to use that money. So uh, I'll click to That's a nice thing. And if I'm right, they might not be oh so far away. Maybe we should talk about some of these earnings then that are pulling things higher and causing me to worry a bit. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's start in Europe, because we never do. Uh, you've been looking at, well, LVMH, uh, which is um, where we left things off before. Uh, what's been happening there, Steve? Uh, so, uh, pretty decent report, to be honest with you. Uh, this was uh, the sort of report, Steve, that puts you back to being the world's richest person. And uh, that's what happened to uh, um, Chairman and CEO, I believe he is, um, Bernard Arnault. Uh, topped back on top of uh, on top of Musk, who obviously wasn't helped by his own company's performance. So, LVMH at one point was up about sixteen percent today, and it fell back to about twelve point eight percent on the day, which for a company of its size is a really really big jump. It took others with it as well. Um, we'll try and explore where, uh, why that was. Uh, Kering was one that jumped uh, quite a big amount. That's a, that's a competitor of sorts. And uh, Richmond um, from Switzerland, that jumped as well. And uh, yeah, uh, Ben is a very interesting fella. Uh, there's a couple of interesting uh, attacks on his competitors in his call. Um, but yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. I, to, and to say uh, for such a big company, the presentation that they put out is really, really interesting. However, I got to the end of the presentation and, and realized that I'd not really written anything down. Um, there was a lot of fluff in it, uh, but it is an interesting presentation. And if it's a company you're interested in, I would recommend reading it all the same, even if they're really just telling you sort of stuff you already know. Um, so yeah, this was uh, end of the year for them as well. So it's full year uh, results. Um, revenue was up 9% year on year. It grew to 86.2 billion euros. Uh, this was actually affected by a four percent currency headwind, as I found in the uh, in the presentation. So uh, it's actually more like thirteen percent growth organically, which organically is always a, an interesting word to me as well, because they acquire a company and then a the year later they call it organic growth. Um, it's not quite what that is, but um, anyway, breaking it down into segments. So there's wine and spirits. Um, this includes your champagnes and your Hennessy, etc., etc. Uh, this was actually down seven percent to six point six billion euros. Uh, fashion and leather goods, which is by far the biggest sector, that was up nine percent to forty two point two billion euros. Perfume and cosmetics was up seven percent to eight point three billion euros. Uh, watches and jewelry was up three percent to ten point nine billion euros. And selective retailers was plus twenty percent to seventeen point nine billion euros. So. Fairly decent growth uh, across the board. Uh, Wines and Spirits was a particular laggard of the lot, but it is uh, the smallest um, sector. Uh, that equated to $22.8 billion uh, in profit. That's up 8%, uh, a 26.5% operating margin. That's actually down 0.1% uh, year on year. And uh, about $8.1 billion in operating free cash flow. So uh, quite a healthy uh, financial performance. 
Uh, in terms of geographies, um, it was 25% US, which experienced 4% revenue growth, 25% EU, which was 13% revenue growth, 31% Asia, 18% growth, 12% other markets, uh, 7% Japan, 28% growth. Uh, they also announced an increase in the dividend, Steve. I know you'll be excited about that. Um, they've uh, taken it from 12 euros up to 13 euros. Uh, and they were keen to stress that this is actually a 17% uh, annual growth rate uh, over the last five years. So I took a look at the call. The call was pretty interesting. Uh, there's bits and pieces on there. Um, I'm just going to pull off uh, a few bits and pieces and uh, and see what you think. Um, so Bernard was up first and he said, firstly, I need to tell you that the end of the year was rather good. The fourth quarter uh, delivered higher growth than the third, and that's good news. We know that there were some uncertainties in the market, but it went well. And yet, in 2023, the economic and especially geopolitical context was rather, was rather uncertain, with the conflicts around the world, inflation, rising interest rates. I think it all seems to be calming a bit. We'll see what the situation is in 2024, uh, but it, this was a year marked by those global difficulties. Uh, he said um, he was talking about watches and jewellery and, uh, and various brands and mentioned that um, Sauvage is the number one uh, for the second uh, or third consecutive uh, most widely sold fa uh, fragrance, both in the men's category and actually across all categories. Uh, it's a fragrance that they actually launched over 10 years ago. Um, so it's very good performance that, you know, it's it's still doing so well. Um in selective retailing, he hired the he, he highlighted the remarkable performance of Sephora, uh, which is a, a makeup brand that they acquired fairly recently. Uh, this has managed to exceed all of their forecasts, and in the soft luxury segment, uh, they have two strong the two strongest brands in the world with uh, Louis Vuitton and Dior, and they have uh, good competitors. Without mentioning um, the remarkable Chanel and Hermes in hard luxury category, that's things like watches and jewelry. Um, they have outstanding brands such as Tiffany and Bulgari, and in uh, in the competition, there's a very good group in the Richmond group, um, which has Cartier and Van Cleef and things like that. So, uh, quite a bit of competition, uh, but but doing really really well. Um, he had a chat about the decentralized structure about LVMH, which is something that uh, they talked quite a bit about in the Business Breakdowns podcast. So we, we would encourage you to go over to, uh, and listen to that if you're interested. But essentially, there's about 70 companies within LVMH who they all have their sort of own CEO. Uh, they have some autonomy. Bernard calls it full autonomy, but it's quite well known that he will get on the blower to them and give them an absolute bollocking if something's not quite going the, the way he wants to go. Um, so he, he explained this as, he called it interaction. He said, there's interaction, but there's independence. Uh, every leader behaves as though he owns the brand, and that's good. Sometimes it's difficult because we want to intervene and step in, and sometimes we don't agree, but that's good, and that's how it should be. Um, about the short and medium term, he said, um, when he joined LVMH, uh, sorry, when you joined LVMH, I said, you're joining a family, not just an anonymous group. Um, you will see the family members and two additional family members that will be joining the board. And I think this is good, aside from the fact that it brings down the average age of our executives. Um, they asked him if he uh, was planning to um, leave in the near future. And he said that he hadn't planned to. Uh, he doesn't plan to leave in the short or medium term. So rest assured, and that might make you sad, but I'm uh, I'm here for a while yet. Um, talking about Louis Vuitton, he said that it was a very special business. It's the leading global luxury brand. Um, it's not just about fashion. Um, they've invested quite a bit of it. Um, 
it's uh, they're, they're working on historical products uh, that they're developing with um, uh, Pietro, which is the new um, CEO. Uh, the designers and others are truly uh, the call for this French historical brand, he said. Uh, they're making many workshops uh, in France, uh, giving a lot of work where we recruit lots of great craftsmen every year uh, is driving this brand to success. Uh, they asked him a little bit more about succession planning, and he said um, essentially that he's not looking to uh, step down in the in the, in the near term future. He mentioned that uh, they've basically con- uh, consolidated the the hold of his controlling family. Uh, they've nominated his two sons to the board: uh, Alexandra, uh, who's thirty one, and Frederick, who's twenty nine. Uh, they're both candidates that still need to be voted in, but they they are nominated. I think they're going to be uh, voted on, or that topic is going to be voted on in April. Uh, that will mean four of his five children are on the board. Um, only the twenty five year old uh, Jean does not have a seat, although I would imagine that is coming in the near future. Uh, these are not the typical sort of nepotism sort of issues that you would uh, think these are going to be. These these kids have worked in the company uh, pretty much since they've been able to, and um, uh, Bernard has sort of drilled into them a sense of uh, exactly what they need to do to make this, this company a, a success. Uh, he is an engineer by trade, uh, not, uh, not a... Um, uh, a luxury goods man at all so he's got he's got a business brain on his shoulders and he's been he's been working hard to instill that in his uh in his kids so i think this is a pretty interesting stock steve i like i say i'm now an owner in this stock an owner of this stock and um yeah i thought i think it's it came through with a lot of positivity and um it's uh yeah it's, it's sparked a little bit of interest back in the luxury sector again yeah, those are interesting numbers. Those are good numbers. And it's always interesting to try and work out which of two things the good numbers tell you. And it could be both. Um, I suppose it could be neither as well, but it could be both. Um, one is this sector is holding better than people think, or there's still strong demand in this sector, um, possibly. The other is this company has uh, some, in some way unique or better than average or specifically good brands. And even if uh, the sector itself is under pressure, and we've been seeing bits of this sector come under pressure. I mean, it's a bit hard, I think, to work out where you draw the line between um, luxury goods and non-luxury goods. There are other words that get kind of chucked around, right, like premium uh, and so on. And I'm not quite sure what I think the difference between luxury and premium is so if you think about um uh LVMH's kind of wines and spirits arm as they call it here that features things like moe things like krug things like uh glenmorangie which is whiskey and compare that with something like um diageo which considers itself to be premium uh i guess in its way and i think they own things like johnny walker uh tanqueray and lagavulin um and some of those, where it comes down to Glenmorangie against Lagavulin, I, I wonder whether the premium one is the other way. But um, I'm interested in, I think what this might be showing you is that there's some real strength in brands over uh, LVMH because bits of this sector, the kind of less exclusive premium uh, or something like that, uh, part of the market appears to be falling away a little bit. You've seen Burberry struggle. Now, admittedly, that has as much to do with China as anything. Uh, you've seen other companies come under pressure as well when their maybe their kind of luxury credentials don't quite square up with uh, the exclusivity that people who are really really uh, spending the money on these things want and demand. So 
I was impressed by this. You mentioned there have been a bit of a pull higher across other areas of these things, but it feels to me like at least some of this is uh, backing LVMH specifically and maybe specifically some of the brands and companies it owns as part of its conglomerate rather than just turns out that the uh, luxury consumer goods um, market is is stronger than we thought it was. I have one other thought on that for you uh, in a bit, but do you get the same impression? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely the same impression. I think, um, I mean, generally the market was was really down on this area and it's right to be because every time we've had inflationary periods, luxury goods have suffered, um, uh, you know, and with it, obviously with the uh, interest rates that come with it. So um, you would have been quite within your sort of, um, you know, you would probably quite correct in your thoughts if your history is going to repeat yourself here and LVMH were going to struggle. Uh, and that's um, that's definitely not what happened. Um, this is a company that does um, growth by acquisition, essentially. I mean, it's pretty good once it gets the brands in it at 10 in the screw and growing these brands even further. But uh, the way it looks for its major growth is through... Um, is for acquisition and, and there are interesting tidbits in uh the statement uh about um uh richemont which they had a um uh an offer to buy them turned down um last year um he said uh essentially that he considers rupert to be an outstanding leader and he doesn't in the slightest wish to upset his strategy and understands that he wants to remain independent uh, and he finds that good but if he wants help to maintain his independence i'll be there he says so uh, i think that's a a big hint at where he was uh, you know where he's looking for the next leg uh, of, of growth um is is going to come from um he did say uh, in a sort of um cuz he's quite aggressive in the way that he talks and i was talking to steve about this off air he's not afraid to say like ceos are usually quite diplomatic they usually say like you know other people do discounts that's not our strategy uh He's a little bit more direct at that. So he says he was asked essentially if they'd done any discount in the wine and spirits to try and make up the sales. And he says, uh, but what you said about discount, there were no discounts. We cancelled the price increases, but we offered no discounts. Discounts is what Perno and Remy do. <laughs> so they're disparaging the uh, disparaging the neighbours. But um, I'll just quickly finish with this, Steve. This was quite a good bit that he pulled out of the, uh, the thing. It was about... Um, uh, Sephora, uh, sorry, because he said that it was difficult and it's a bit different because it's retailing. Um, but the success that they've achieved uh, in the last year was quite extraordinary. It was growing at about 20%, uh, which they think is, is quite far and above um, what they were expecting. So they said that they were not experiencing the same at Tiffany. Uh, they think it's going well there and they're not in a hurry uh, since they acquired it, um, I think, in 2021. But um, yeah, they were saying that growth at Tiffany is not as strong as expected, but um, its operating income has actually tripled since they bought it. So this is something where they've managed to, rather than grow it on the top line, they've managed to screw down the costs and uh, and get it to grow. But they've also said they're not going to triple it in the next two years. So you have to sort of like bear that in mind that you know they've had some pretty outstanding success. Uh, but they don't think that is uh, that is to be repeated. So they're expecting eight to ten percent growth from here, Steve. That's the the uh, the sort of number that um, Bernard wants to put on it. He thinks that essentially it's your problem as shareholders for pricing in twenty five percent growth in a company that realistically is pretty big and finds that really hard to you know to he's going to find it really hard to grow at that. He said 
yeah, his words were they've reached a stage where they no longer need to have high growth, and between eight and ten percent is like perfect and sustainable for them. And I can see what he's saying, Nessie. This is a really big company, and and obviously ten percent growth uh, is uh, is really good for LVMH here. So I think it's a fascinating business, Steve. Got a lot of moving parts, but it's not difficult to understand. I think if you if you can get a grasp on the sector itself, um, you said um, last week, Steve. I think it was pretty much along the lines of people need clothes, but they don't always need those clothes. I think some people do need these clothes, and I think some people's lives depend on having them. What do you think about that? I'm not. Maybe. Um, I think the number of people to whom that applies, I'm not going to say it's not true of anybody, um, but I think the number of people to whom that applies is small. I was just looking at some of their uh, brands that they um, have here, and while I recognize all of them as luxury, I was writing down price points for some of their higher end products here, and I'm looking at uh, Moe at sort of between 20 and 45 quid a bottle, um, Tiffany engagement rings at around 1500 quid uh and tag higher uh watches i was trying to work out as expensive as i could go you can probably go a lot higher on the louis vuitton stuff actually but two to six thousand um and each of those price points is a price that i would not pay uh particularly easily but it's also a price that i could see myself working myself to be in a position to afford um i'm not going to pay it because i choose not to but could i save six grand and buy a watch say like a really good one a tag higher one um, yep, probably. If I really put my mind to it, I could I could save six grand for something. Um, if I figured out my kind of weekly, monthly budget better, could I find a spare 45 quid and spend it on champagne? Yep, I'm not going to. Uh, I have other uses for it. But there's a certain sense, I think, to this, which says that they're they're clearly expensive. They're clearly exclusive in that regard. But they set you aside as the kind of person who has this stuff to spend on things that people don't need in ways that even ways that like Ferrari or something uh, doesn't to an extent. Um, Ferrari is like beyond the level of, no, I don't, to be honest, know how I could get myself into a position to afford a uh, Ferrari. I mean, maybe if I sold a house or something, but uh, or inheritance or whatever, whatever. But um, I don't see my way to affordability with those things. And I think there's something kind of aspirational then about the LVMH stuff where when I think about luxury stuff and the luxury things that I, or quote unquote luxury things that I own, they were nearly all given to me. And they were nearly all given to me because I asked for them. And I asked for them because I kind of deep down want to be the kind of person that has enough disposable income to to live that life. I don't actually want to do it, but I want to be the kind of person that can do it and use whatever fancy shower gel, shaving stuff, um, whatever, whatever it might be in this um, instance. So I think there's something about these kind of brands where... I mean, if you think, if you're right, that there is a kind of category of person that these things matter to that, or, or need, uh, if we go as far as to say that for the moment, the pricing on this stuff isn't a case of, well, I don't care how much you need a Ferrari, you can't buy one. Um, and also they have a, a kind of largest dis- distribution retail scale, which makes buying it a lot easier than buying um, a Ferrari or even a Rolex or whatever. Uh, and I think, they have this capacity if you think you need it it's at a price where you can probably see your way to getting there um i don't see my way to getting there because i don't think i need it but i can none of that looks to me like it's priced as a kind of how's anyone ever afford this that kind of thing so that was my um yeah that's my kind of thought on the people that need it i think the people that think they need it will find ways to buy it which is great for a company like lvmh yeah i think this um they they they're quite 
they've got quite a broad spectrum of brands. Uh, I think they have got a, and I'm for the people who are only listening, like an aspirational ladder of people who want to climb the ladder of brands from the not so massively expensive to the, you know, you're wasting your money on a 500 or million pound watch, which I think he, he spoke about in one of the, uh, and it is an awful watch. Um, in the, uh, it's gaudy as all hell. I'll put a picture up for anybody at home, but yeah, there is an aspirational ladder there that you can you can climb, um, you know, up the brands, and they'll sort of serve you the the whole way up. So, um, yeah, fascinating company, Steve. I think this one I'll just be happy to sit on for a while. Now I, I I'm unsure what to do. Uh, I have to rework out uh, all of my figures because they're already eighteen percent out from uh, where I thought they would be. Um, the only other thing I would highlight is it's still actually 18% off its all-time highs. I know that's a useless statistic to anybody, but this is not something that has all of a sudden returned to all-time highs. So um, there may be something there. And a couple of blots on an otherwise pretty decent record. Um, LVMH has a stake in both Peloton and Free Trade. So, um, yeah, a blot in another otherwise perfect um, record, I would say. Keep that quiet, don't they? Um, that they're um, yeah, they also own Peloton and Free Trade as well as uh, LV and M and H uh, built into all that stuff. Okay, uh, should we talk about something slightly different then? Um, it's Let's a bit more it. mass market, a bit more mainstream bit less civilized maybe uh depending on exactly where we go with this but let's talk about netflix because that stock also or that company reported earnings this week and that stock went up 14 percent as a result um netflix is a company that just seems to keep growing at least for the time being anyway so revenue came in at 8.83 billion dollars which was 17 percent higher and was a beat um earnings per share came in i double check this and i think it's right at two dollars 11 which was plus 1658 percent and a miss um so uh wall street was guiding for higher than 1658 percent on this one uh it's because q4 of last year was uh artificially very very low at the earnings line but uh anyway operation uh operating margin forecast was the the kind of interesting number here it was around 24 percent that they're guiding for this year and that i think is what really set people going members were up and keep going up there's some interesting charts on this that you showed me actually uh steve but there's now nearly 261 million netflix um subscribers i've written members here but i've i mean subscribers i think in this case with that's about 13 million more added um over the last quarter it's impressive that the way this thing keeps going they did take a back step of course a year and a half ago a couple of years ago maybe uh and everyone thought the sky was falling but it turns out it wasn't so um what's been going on here not really advertising revenue from what they were uh saying the the report said that it's not the big driver in the short term they think there's a lot more they can do with the advertised uh the ad supported part of their business but that's not currently what's really kicking things along look for that long term rather than short term um according to a chart you sent me which i guess you can try and pop in now uh and work out which one it is um netflix has the best content uh, and it's as straightforward as that one of the things that's winning so if you look at their imdb reviews uh the amount that they have more stuff rated 8.5 out of 10 i imagine or higher uh than any of the other major streaming things whether that's disney or um uh, peacock or uh hulu or, or basically anyone um across the board more stuff rated uh between 6.5 and 8 which i suppose you might consider as pretty good but not 
um, super, super stellar binge watch must see stuff and less stuff, importantly, uh, rated at below 6.5, which I guess you might regard as meh um, or worse, uh, as, the, as the case may be. Um, and that's interesting, right? Because you expect Netflix to have more, at least in some categories, just because they have more stuff uh, in these cases and they're, they're bigger and have more content. But they skew a lot better as well here. They they show up better on the side of um, good quality content or at least the content that people like. And you might wonder why this is. Tim Byers was talking about this on the Motley Fool uh, Money Show. And I don't always agree with the stuff that Tim Byers says, but it's hard to disagree with everything he says because he appears to say completely different stuff at different times. And you have to think something um, unless you change your mind as often as him, but the opposite to him, which isn't a terrible idea. But he was uh, emphasizing the importance of their very much. Um, so it's an uncertain business content uh, creation or distribution and selecting content for distribution. But what he was saying is they tend to do very well by making quite a lot of small bets. So as a general principle, if you're unsure about what the right thing to buy is, buy every damn thing um, or buy loads of damn things. And if it's equal chance of anyone turning up to be right, then sure, buy Squid Games, buy Queen's Gambit, buy a whole load of other stuff. Um, uh, I think they made Queen's Gambit, actually. It's not a good example. But uh, buy Squid Games, buy a whole load of other stuff. And stuff that wins in some small markets might well travel better and you will do well over time like that by generating big margins because you'll get huge returns from some things, even if other things don't work uh, so well. So what they're looking for is a kind of local-ish expertise combined with a global-ish scale, which sounds like the Coca-Cola model, which has been tremendously successful for that company too. Um, growth wise, uh, revenue has been growing at 22% per year over the last, um, decade and subscribers have been growing at 20% over the last decade or so, according to, again, the chart that you, uh, nicely put before me. And what I thought I was supposed to take from this, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that subscription growth isn't just empty. They're not just adding people at all costs here, uh, adding subscribers. They are also managing to increase prices with it. Which means, uh, and if they were growing at the same rate, you would expect a kind of fixed growth in the same things, but that gap is widening. Okay, it's widening by a 2% per year on average. Okay, but that's quite significant when you start compounding things higher. A 2% delta becomes significant over 10 years and very significant over a longer time than um, that. There were a bunch of other charts you sent as well, Steve, but I've been talking for a while about this. We'll come back to those other things in a bit and we'll come back to um their uh wwe acquisition news how did the earnings uh stuff go for you i thought they looked really strong steve um i thought this was another sort of um spear in the back of ackman uh who, who got this one uh completely wrong um which he does quite often get wrong with his uh with his um individual stocks his his big macro stuff he seems to be absolutely spot on with but his stocks he seems to be a little bit rash uh, and i i do wonder um why that is but what really stood out to me steve was during q4 2022 um revenue growth was only about two percent uh and then um through into the next quarter of uh, the first quarter of 23 it was only four second quarter of 23 uh, it was only 3%. So you could have been excused around that kind of area for thinking, uh, well, this maybe is, you know, we're maybe into sort of terminal growth here for Netflix where it manages 4 or 3%. It was already a big company at this point and uh, and um, growth, um, you know, might might just be, uh, it might just be at the top of where it, you know, where it's going to be. Uh, they've 
soon <laughs> change that around, Steve, because Q3 23 was 8, Q4 23 was 12, and Q1 24 was 13% growth. So uh, they are uh, they are re-accelerating their uh, revenue growth, Steve. And that is, uh, well, I mean, it shows really good management that they're able to uh, to to reaccelerate in this way, it also shows that you know the things that we said last year about growth pulled forward. They really did affect Netflix. Um, it was growing at a, a very very quick pace. Um, but yeah, impressive to see um, two two hundred twenty one million subscribers, Steve. When uh, when it got the big drop, uh, and people said uh, it was all over for Netflix. It had two twenty two, two twenty two, and then the quarter where it fell to two twenty one. People thought this was the end. Uh, we're now at 260-odd million, um, so very much so not the end. Um, I was interested in looking at some of the other bits and pieces I, saw, uh, I sent over. I also looked at the Nielsen study as well, uh, which shows that it still only makes up a fraction of all the uh, the uh, the amount of TV watched uh, in the uh, in the US in, uh, in particular there's still tons of other growth markets out there for Netflix as well so i think uh, anybody um anybody looking at Netflix and saying that this is the growth story you know that has ended is probably um being a bit like an american who can't spot any other countries on the map um i think um yeah i think the valuation now is a little bit crazy um i do feel a bit of a fool for selling out of this one a little bit early steve but i honestly thought that the three the fours and the two percents were about as good as we were gonna get um if i would have known there was an eight a 12 and a 13 coming steve i would have almost definitely have held onto this one and just let it run and it would have been by far and away my biggest position at the moment so um, yeah, I mean, we've talked with this one to death, Steve. I, we, I think everybody here knows that, that this is a company I'm a big fan of, uh, and I actually like the content as well, to be honest with you, Steve, which feels like quite a, a, a not very good thing to say. Uh, definitely not in the trading two-on-two -two, uh, forums where everybody hates it. Um, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, wonderful company, Steve, uh, but probably not a wonderful price. That last chart that you alluded to um, that I hadn't got to yet really stood out for me. So I see Netflix adding millions of subscribers every quarter now, and I sort of wonder, well, how long can that go, uh, basically? Because I know how many people there are in the world, and, and so on, or roughly anyway, um, and I kind of feel like, well, yeah, but if you add millions every quarter and so on, I mean, who's not signed up to Netflix yet that is... Uh, kind of ever going to is is a natural wonder but when you look at it um yeah over the u.s in terms of tv hours it has eight percent of it and streaming is only about 30 percent um in the uk when you could that the uk data covered all screens i think so it covered things like tablets and phones and whatnot and uh streaming is still only 36 um percent of it uh and you wonder kind of where the rest of it's coming from or at least you do initially and the answer is it's linear um it's still linear is sort of winning i say winning i mean gradually losing but it's currently got a roughly two-thirds share of the tv market and by linear we mean basically kind of tv channels that say look this thing's on at this time turn up and watch it or don't turn up and watch it or watch it on catch up or whatever but we're going to play the stuff when we say we're going to play the stuff and you can tune in or not tune in and we'll sell you advertising space based on this that and the other um kind of thing that itv is currently seeing go backwards quite a bit there's been a lot of interest in that stock from uk investors 
lately. They are in the process of, I think, pivoting for the second time. Uh, the kind of ITV hub thing didn't really work. So they've now got ITVX and they're busy building that out. Uh, and that's, that's doing good things for them. They are bringing in uh, good subscriber growth and improved revenues and so on as they attempt to sell advertising space. But Linear is going backwards. And ITV, okay, this is a much more extreme case than some of the other things that we've seen are just so far behind. And the shift to streaming, if it is anything, it is expensive uh, for these um, companies and it is uh, costly and it takes a while to get all those costs out the way before profits start coming through. And if Netflix is ahead of you in this, it's generating cash, meaningful free cash and profitable cash before you are. Um, and it's going to be in a big advantage as a result, right? Yeah, Netflix is in the position where everyone's battling to be, aren't they? And that's the problem is is that I've, I'll, I'll post a meme up of it. I, uh, I posted it on the Trading 212 forum of a, a huge fight going on uh, in the background and one man sat there eating his chips. And that is essentially uh, exactly what is happening in the streaming wars at the moment. Netflix is sat there as the winner and everyone else is battling for second place, Steve, which, which is tough really because it's not getting any harder for Netflix to keep winning. It is getting harder for people to finish second. And um, that's not a good thing for all the other people battling for that second position. Um, I listened to the Streetwise podcast this week, Steve. I assume you have done it as well. There was a guy on there basically saying that he thinks Disney Plus is a bit of a flop. And uh, I was quite interested in his take on it, as I am interested in a lot of takes. I think potentially a little bit short-sighted um, in, in, in his overall view. And it made me feel a little bit more short-sighted when he put forward T-Mobile or Verizon as buys uh, at the end of it. I thought this that, that's quite uninspiring. Um, but yeah, I think uh, back to Netflix, um, really, really impressive. Um, really across the board, it's really hard to fault any part of the way this company is, is executing. And then, Steve, they're about to make this step uh, into the ring. What have you got on that? Yep, I was uh, going to say, do you like wrestling uh, in that case? Because they've spent five billion, I think, for basically five years worth of licensing rights to stream, uh, and I think probably exclusively, WWE Raw, uh, which I remember from being like 12 years old, but I probably don't remember any of the people that are currently there now. I suspect everyone that I watched and liked and really enjoyed uh, WWE Raw um, has now uh, retired or, or, or worse, potentially, but um 5 billion uh, for this uh, then i was kind of looking at this and it feels like a slight shift in direction a little bit but not that much i spent a lot of time thinking about a question here which is do i consider wrestling that form of wrestling by the way not like olympic wrestling to be a sport um and eventually i came to the conclusion the answer was no uh because i think it's scripted and i don't think you can have a sport where uh, neither person is trying to win and the outcome is already determined, basically. I, I consider it to be a, a... I mean, you can have things where people are like prohibitive heavy favourites, right? Um, that's fine uh, in terms of something being a sport. But I settled on the idea that it's not. And here's why I thought this was important. Um, I was listening to Scott Galloway earlier in the week and he said with Netflix, the thing with streaming and indeed with... Uh, or Netflix in particular and streaming in general is that it's not time sensitive the way that linear stuff is. The reason sports hasn't really gone on to streaming in the same way is that it tends to be you watch when it's convenient for you and you watch what you want and when you want. And no one wants to watch uh, the Super Bowl or um, the World Cup final or, or whatever 
two days later uh, or something. And the reason for that is probably because it's a kind of news and you will see if you're in a part of the world that cares about these things, Super Bowl might be front page news. Um, so might the World Cup final uh, and so on and so forth. And you want to be watching that live or or at the very least, very, very close to it. Maybe even not at all if it's not live, to be honest. But um, I don't think that WrestleMania is like that. I don't think WrestleMania makes news. I mean, not in virtue of what happens there in terms of the kind of content of who uh, wins against who and what storylines unfold and so on. Uh, so I think probably WrestleMania and, and WWE in general is fine because I view it as more of a kind of high action soap, uh, and, and that's quite a sort of old fashioned, but maybe drama is another way of thinking of it, than I view it as uh, a general sport here. So it's not the case that I think sport is a good fit for Netflix. That's currently the only thing the linear networks have going for them, as I can tell, uh, that they tend to um, offer out live sport and people are fine with being told to turn up and watch this thing at this time because that's when it's happening um but they're not fine with it when it's uh something like wwe uh, or whatever so i think i view it okay in terms of fit five billion is an interesting ish number if you think they're going to maintain this 25 percent margin thing you're probably looking at about 20 billion in revenues over the next uh five years from this they're not going to kind of break that out and say here's where this came from partly because they can't um but that's going to come from a combination of new subscribers, higher ads, higher prices, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, they currently make $33 billion in total revenue. Will it add a bit more on each year? Maybe, uh, probably. Um, I think probably they have decent operating leverage. So actually, if it comes from new subscribers, then a fair bit will drop straight through. So you'll get better than the 25% I was sketching. It's not an obvious screaming deal uh, to me at that price, to be honest. But it's not an obvious screaming mistake either. No, it's a it's a big deal, really, when you think about it in terms of um, in terms of the size of it. Um, you're looking at about ten million dollars an episode um, for for Netflix here. So um, they they're obviously hoping that this will drive um, some some subscribers to the platform. They've obviously looked at the demo that watch um, wrestling and have decided that perhaps uh, this might be a younger audience who isn't yet signed up to Netflix, and this might bring them in. Or it might be a, a particular demo that isn't isn't signed up to Netflix or doesn't stay on Netflix, and something like a regular recurring show that you know happens once a week is maybe something to keep people, you know, make the product a little bit more sticky. So um, we'll see how this works out. I think it's a very interesting foray. It's kind of a halfway house between the sports that we think streaming will eventually consume and the entertainment which they already consume it is a halfway house of a, a sports soap if you like um so yeah really really interesting move i'm i'm quite interested in it steve i might even give it a try you think uh i think my days of these things are gone i think the characters that i very much knew and loved and the storylines that i knew and loved are now consigned to the past it was pre pretty the kind of merger with WCW uh, that I was interested in this stuff and, and, and really interested actually, but I'm not, alas, I'm not 12 anymore and I don't have the time I had available when I was 12 is the main um, issue that I have. But let's talk about things that I am supposed to be interested in now that I'm a grown-up. No 12-year-old is interested in semiconductor making equipment, but uh, we are. Steve, how's ASML been going on? And let's see how we go on this one and maybe we'll leave the Tesla shareholders to... Uh, ponder for another week because there'll be some other Tesla news story between now and um, the start of February. Let's get them both done, Steve. We'll be as quick as we All can. All right. Um, ASML, 
uh, on the quarter, um, you're looking at revenue of 7.2 billion. That's up 13%. Gross profit of 3.7 billion, up 12%. That's about a 51% margin. Very strong for an industrial. Uh, about 2.4 billion in EBIT. Um, that's about 13, uh, up 13%. That's about a 33% margin. 2 billion in net income. That's up 13%. Margin of 28%. And, uh, there's about 3.2 billion in operating cash flow, just just over 3.2 billion in operating cash flow. That's actually down 40%, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Steve, they sold 124 things. Uh, that was up 17%. Um, net bookings of 9.2 billion. That's growth of 45%. And net bookings in the EV, EUV section alone was 5.6 billion. So pretty decent growth on the quarter, really. But on the year, it gets even better. Revenue is 27.6 billion euros. That's up 30%. Gross profit, 14.1%. Up 32%. That's a 51% margin, which is up 76 basis points. Uh, 9 billion in EBIT. That's up 39%. Margin of 33% plus 211 basis points, and net income was 7.8 billion. Uh, that's up 39%. That's a margin of 28%, and that's up 188 basis points. In terms of full year metrics on the uh, on these uh, systems, EUV system sales was 9.1 billion. That's up 30%. DUV system sales was up 12.3 billion. That's 60%. Memory sales was 6 billion, up 9%. Logic sales 16 billion, up 60%. And installed base management sales uh, was about 5.6 billion. This is like servicing and bits and bobs actually out in the field. Uh, in terms of guide, they said net sales of about 5.5 billion, which is uh, a little bit less than uh, what they've done uh, this quarter. Uh, installed base management sales of about 1.3 billion, uh, which will bring you just under uh, this revenue figure. They reckon the gross margin will be about 49%. They're at 51% at the moment. Uh, a bit more on the outlook, they said uh, similar net sales uh, with a slightly uh, a slightly lower GPM. Um, uncertainty remains in the semiconductor market, but they think that it's working through its cycle bottom at the moment. I mean, if this is the bottom, Steve, <laughs> hell's bells. Uh, positive signs of uh, improvement in industry end market inventory levels and uh, litho tool utilization. Uh, they had a very strong fourth quarter 23 order intake. Uh, the logic was slightly down, uh, slightly lower revenue. Um, memory growth uh, was driven by DRAM, and this is for the, the DDR5 version of RAM and HBM versions of RAM. Uh, stronger hit uh, half two than half one and they've said that 2024 they think is going to be a, a sort of a transitional year for them but they're predicting significant growth in 2025 and i'll explain this later but basically the lead time on um these uh gross bookings that we've seen that have grown so uh, large is about a 12 to 18 uh, month waiting list at the very least so yeah we're going to be into 2025 before we start to see that uh, and they're obviously trying to improve uh, improve capacity as well so a uh, little bit on the call steve um they said that they expect the market to continue expanding uh all the way through 2030 uh they think there's strong growth uh, despite challenges they've got a solid backlog uh, they said that they finished with a full backlog if you add the whole thing together for about 39 billion euros um at the moment, they're seeing a, a little AI bottleneck in DRAM and HBM, which is high bandwidth memory. 
uh, hence why the EUV sales are so strong at the moment. Uh, they basically said there's a bottleneck in AI and making use of full AI's potential. DRAM is the bottleneck. The performance memory is also another bottleneck. There are solutions, but they need a hell of a lot more uh, HBM. And for that, you can only use an EUV system. Uh, they're building inventory for the high NA system at the moment, which is why that um, free cash flow figure looks so bad at the moment. Um, they just said, we're building inventory for high NA. Uh, so I think on the inventory position, you would see that we're adding quite a bit. Uh, so that's obviously a negative, if you like, to the free cash flow. Uh, high NA is actually more cost effective than their low NA. So this is the new high NA is the new model of uh, EUV that they're bringing out. And they said uh, they think everything that they're currently seeing and also looking at alternative patterns of multi-patterning, which is just the way you write onto a chip, essentially. Low NA EUV and high NA um, EUV is very clearly, very clearly the most cost-effective solution. So I don't know where the notion comes from that we ASML are less bullish about high NA or the adoption of high NA. That is just not not the case. Uh, I think on the contrary, we've seen the, in the interaction with our customers uh, and all of our customers are now convinced that high NA is a more cost-effective uh, solution as opposed to a mobile patterning solution that is on LNA. So in terms of uh, sector recovery, they said we're seeing the first signs, uh, very positive signs of a recovery, which is basically the data that we get on inventory levels. We're also seeing, uh, seeing all our utilization rates go up. Uh, 2025 is probably the first full year of a recovery. Uh, just on why second half is stronger than the first half, they said based on the aforementioned, we expect our non-EUV business to be down a little bit in 2024, primarily driven by lower immersion sales relative to 2023. For our installed based business, based on the view today, we expect a similar level of revenue compared to last year. So the recovery will become more clear uh, in this year sometime. As a reflection of the current state of the industry coming out of a downturn and expected recovery in the course of 2024, we expect a stronger second half relative to the first half of this year. And just reminded that 12 to 18 months is about the lead time. So if you order now for 2025, um, which they think is going to be a really strong year, they said that their order intake is very healthy uh, for the first half of 2024. And they have a 12 to 18 month lead time. So that needs to happen. Uh, basically moving EUV orders now into 2025 delivery timeframe uh, means that, you know, all this backlog you're seeing is not going to be seen in this 2024 year. And um, yeah, so 2025, they finished with is going to be a strong year, uh, recovery, uh, and uh, and by supplying a lot of new fabs. Um, they said that they think cyclical uptime begins in 2025. Uh, they need to prepare for a significant number of new fabs that have been built across the globe. So by fabs, they just mean uh, essentially factories to build them, um, build chips. Um, in some instances, uh, instances uh, some of these fabs are being supported by government incentive plans. Uh, they're spread geographically, and it's uh, strategic that. Um, uh, and it's sorry, it's, it's done that strategically, so customers are scheduled to take our tools. So, uh, and and just quickly on China, they said that actually demand from China is still really robust. Uh, that there's um, there's an uh, an impact coming from these export controls, and um, they did give the impact. If you if you want to go back and go through that, it's about ten to fifteen percent. But um, fundamentally, it's pretty clear that China demand remains really strong, uh, and they are still. Uh, allowed to have the mature uh, the mature nodes and um, 
not the new uh, the new models, but some of the older models. So they don't expect to get um, export licenses for any of the new uh, immersion systems, uh, not through 2024 anyway. And uh, yeah, so export controls is, is hurting by about 10 to 15% of revenue, uh, but uh, not anything that they're particularly worried about, Steve. So this is a company that uh, we highlighted right at the very beginning of our podcasting journey about 200 episodes ago or something like that as uh, one that was uh, had a lot of potential steve but i feel kind of the same about it today as i did all the way back then i still think there's a lot here that could still go very right yeah for as long as i can remember this stuff has had i mean if you boil kind of every business down as far as i can tell it comes down to supply and demand and supply and demand can mean a bunch of different things to a bunch of different businesses and supply can include things like your competitors uh, and so on um and demands can wax and wane and so on and and so forth but asml has always seemed to have um more demand than it can meet supply for it's always had a backlog of orders and i think maybe two quarters ago three quarters ago uh, the stock had a what was considered to be a bad earnings call because its backlog was only stretching sort of 15 months into the future rather than 18 months into the future or something like that and people thought wow this is bad there's a long time to fix something if it goes wrong like that right um if you are basically booked at capacity for the next you were saying 12 to 18 months uh or so people got a lot of time to figure out that they want things before it actually gets to the point where um you're you don't have anything to supply and demand has disappeared or, or you're you're oversupplying your uh kind of area and this is of course an industry with, at least in one sense anyway, no real uh, competitors, or sorry, a company with in one sense anyway, no real competitors. Depends exactly where you look in their product range, uh, I think. But yeah, import controls were the interesting bit uh, for me. And they're the bit that helped me make sense of the idea that this could be a, a cyclical trough um, of a sort. Because I feel like things are probably about as tight as they get. And one of two things happens here. They either stay the same or they uh, get easier, basically. Um, I don't see things getting much worse in terms of import-export controls uh, for ASML. I guess they could theoretically, but that seems unlikely to me. What seems more likely to me is either we stay where we are, in which case they keep working through a similar sort of backlog of what they have, or uh, they improve, in which case they suddenly start getting flooded with extra demand again, which makes them kind of even better off uh really i there's a lot that's technical uh, about asml which is still um enough of a kind of uh consideration and not quite an alphabet soup or bunch of acronyms for me to uh have a pause on this one but very clear that it's a company that's doing well it's not hard to see why at a very general level um and very clear it's a company that is likely to keep doing well in the future because uh, at the very least they have a 12 to 18 month runway before they need to sell anything yeah, it feels like you get a lot of visibility, doesn't it? Uh to um to to you know to to figure out when this company's not doing so well. Um but yeah, really interesting company for me, Steve. So I was just I was looking a, a couple of years ago, I managed to average down on this stock. I think it was about eighteen months ago. I'm just having a, a quick look while we uh while we do it. So my average is about three hundred and forty or something like that. So no, it's a little bit more than that. I think it's four hundred and 412 or something i'm very very close to the 100 percent double on it so uh, but yeah because i averaged up quite a quite a bit at the time but yeah back in uh, october here we're at 397 so i had a chance to average down i'm fairly certain that's where i took it as well so um but it's been 
it's been a, a really, really good winner for me over the over the time. And it's it's just a stock that if it ever gets to valuations that I think make sense, uh, I'm I'm more than willing to buy it. But at the moment, Steve, we're we're talking about forty times earnings. There's a lot priced in here, and without visibility on what they mean by a significant year in 2025, it's really difficult to go out and buy something because at forty times earnings you're already expecting a fairly significant year coming up, I, I would say, on something that's uh, this kind of size. So I'm very wary of the um, the PayPal CEO recently saying he was going to shock the world before announcing five of the most benign AI features I've ever heard in my life and the stock falling 5 or 6% off the back of it. Um, I think, um, personally, I would... Uh, just I'm on myself here. I'm, I'm exercising a bit of caution on, on, on going and picking this one up at any time in the near future, especially when it's up fourteen percent in the last five days, nearly seventeen percent in the month, twenty two percent in just the last six months. For me here, this is a one I'm happy to sit on and watch, and, and not one I'm in a rush to buy. Uh, anything on that, Steve? Yes, yeah, so it's a stock that you'd like to already have bought, isn't it? Uh, rather than a stock that you'd like to be buying now. It feels a bit like, in that respect, and probably that respect alone, a bit like Costco, uh, to be honest, and that I'd rather we already had it. And I can make sense of either of those, I think, if I think with a long enough time horizon going forward. And that 40 PE will come down bit by bit, and then suddenly in a rush, as earnings keep grinding higher, if they keep grinding higher over time but it will take time and the obvious risk here is um valuation risk basically that okay there's a fair bit that's priced in to happen here and it's priced in to happen for quite a while i think so earnings visibility is good given earnings visibility is good the company's balance sheet is actually quite strong normally um good earnings visibility makes you a more desirable candidate for debt and therefore it makes a lot of sense for you to take it because if people are offering you money for cheap and you have something you can do with it you should but uh, that's not really the case here so you have the benefits of a strong balance sheet and the benefits of strong earnings visibility um it feels like there is yeah as you say quite a bit sort of priced in here maybe with a bit of ai enthusiasm perhaps coming over the top that it's it doesn't really need, uh, to be honest, because it's, uh, it's a very good business and a very good company kind of by itself. Yet you've got to hope that um, we get out of the uh, uh, 2025 before the AI bubble completely collapses on us, Steve. Um, uh, this has been a, a drag along for the stock because it's meant that, um, especially the for the higher-end machines, that they have, uh, they have sold like hotcakes. But to be fair, Steve, before any of this, they were still selling like hotcakes. It's not like this backlog has appeared fairly recently. So, um, yeah, really uh, an impressive business. And another one that's really clear with its demonstrations and its presentations. Um, I think it's another one that you'll quite enjoy uh, reading about. And, and like I say, if you fancy doing something on sectors, if it's a sector that you struggle with uh, people at home and you think it's like Acronym City, the absolute best book you can read on the subject that I've found so far is a, a book called Chip War. And I'll pop a link to it in the uh, description. Um, it goes through the full history of the semiconductor industry and really why we invented the semiconductors is a weird reason, which I won't spoil for you, but it's probably not what you expect. It basically involves hitting a Vietnamese bridge that we uh, we dropped bombs on for about a year. Well, we, the Americans, dropped bombs on for um, about a year and a half and didn't get within a mile of hitting. Uh, so they needed something to help them uh, sort of geo-target 
against it. But yeah, really interesting uh, book, and it will really help you understand the industry, the history, and um, well, ASML, Intel, Texas uh, Instruments, all the major players, really. So um, TSMC as well. Um, really, really highly recommend it. So, Steve, acutely aware we are out of time, but do you have time to just quickly run through Tesla with me? Yeah, all right. I've strenuously avoided talking about Tesla over the last few weeks because it always feels like there's some news, but it always feels like um, it's not quite worth us to talk about it. But let's do it for the moment then. Um, Revenues for Tesla, they've reported some earnings, basically, and the stock has gone from about $212 at the start of the week to about $185 at the end of it. I'm going to try and avoid saying too many things that will make too many people cross at me. Here I go. Uh, revenues came in at $25.17 billion. That's up a bit from the 24 and a bit billion that they managed last year, but was below what Wall Street was expecting. Earnings came in at 71 cents a share, which was lower than the dollar and seven they managed last year, which was also lower than Wall Street was expecting. Um, Not sure why this was much of a surprise to anyone, to be honest. It's well known that Tesla has been lowering prices. It's well known that what happens when you lower prices is that you can probably sell more stuff, uh, and they did sell more stuff. They managed 484,000 vehicle deliveries, which is a record by uh, for them and probably for anybody. They were the, the Model Y, I think, was probably the best-selling car in uh, Q4. BYD is hot on their tail when it comes to mere volumes. But anyway, um, none of this should have looked like a massive surprise, I think, to anybody. So prices were lower, therefore you sold more stuff, therefore you made less money because you didn't sell it for as much as you were selling it for before. Um, and yet, down goes the stock. Uh, why? I think the reason is that there was a pretty disappointing earnings call. Um, and this is, okay, speculation on my part here, but you see margins go in the wrong way and you see earnings go in the wrong way, even though you see revenues and deliveries going uh, the right way. But Tesla were, I think, kind of surprisingly quiet uh, on this. And they're turning off a number of kind of long-term bulls here. Again, not my view. Just some facts for the moment. Uh, Dan Ives, who has long time been long time Tesla uh, shareholder and enthusiast, and still has a price target on it that, if you thought it was going to that price in the next year, you'd probably buy it now. Uh, to be honest, it's three something his uh, price target, and at one eight five, I would buy something if I thought it was going to three something in the next twelve months. Um, but what he said in his note was, we were, um, ooh, we were dead worried expecting uh, Musk and his team to step up like adults in the room and give a strategic and financial overview of the ongoing price cuts, margins uh, structure, and fluctuating demand. Instead, we got a high-level Tesla long-term view with another train wreck conference call. Um, Adam Jonas, who works at Morgan Stanley, and said uh, has pretty much the highest price target of anyone that I can find that doesn't work for ARC on this uh said look investors and analysts are very much on their own this year in trying to work things out and i think that is pretty much correct uh they didn't offer much here they said some sort of um non-quantitative stuff about being between two growth kind of drivers between the next gen cars and the kind of last gen cars which in fairness is a criticism i've heard leveled at tesla that they haven't brought out any new interesting products on the car levels recently um i presume that's discounting the cybertruck i heard this from what i think was probably a tesla perma bear to be honest but um it's the case then okay margins have gone down and people were looking for some sort of strategic sense that this is all gonna be okay and so on um and i don't think they got it and i think that's what's kind of spooking investors at the moment that actually things are going to be down for a bit longer in your uh your kind of mega 
growth thing. The energy business did well. Um, we got told off for not mentioning this last time. We talked about Tesla, I think. But there was good stuff from uh, energy storage. It's quite a small part of the overall business at the moment, though. Uh, they managed 10% kind of revenue growth, but they're only about 6% of total revenue. So it is kind of what it is. Net profit overall, I know this was flagged on Trading 212, um, was $7.9 billion, And of that, $5.8 billion was kind of income tax related rather than well, not necessarily car selling related, but um, anything else related, to be honest. Uh, thoughts on Musk coming in a moment, but Steve, what do you think? Yeah, um, last time we did a video on this, Steve, we got told off because we forgot about all the other things um, that Tesla doesn't sell. Um, and um, we got a, uh, this this uh, income statement is a $5.8 tax benefit, which is bigger than the services bigger than the energy generation and storage, bigger than the leasing, uh, and bigger than the regulatory credit section, which has been a source of good consternation for uh, for, for Tesla um, bears for a while. Uh, the tax benefit dwarfs all of those if you add them together. Um, so um, I guess it's an auto sales and tax benefit company, Steve, if we're, uh, if we're, if we're being serious about the things that we see here. Um, I was pretty disappointed with this report. I'm not a Tesla bull. I called it my short at the beginning of the year, Steve, but I did call it my short last year as well. Uh, we've had three years of essentially flat share price for Tesla, and at the moment, I don't really see it coming uh, coming out of that. Some interesting stats on this, because I, I mean, anecdotally here, I see a lot of Teslas about now, so I assume that leasing must be going really, really well for um, for Tesla. But I, I noted it was down 17% year on year, so leasing for Tesla not going very well. Um, at the moment, uh, I saw the margins were coming down a lot. Gross profit was down uh, six percentage points this year. Operating profit was down eight percentage points this year. Net profit was a 32% margin, which they reported as being up 16 percentage points this year. But you've got a sub off 5.8 billion, that's Steve. So net profit is down a lot. This looks like a car company to me, Steve. I really am. We're going to take it in the neck for saying that here, but these are, you know. If you were to cover up the, the the income statement and write the word Stellantis at the top of it, Steve, this looks like the sort of figures that Stellantis... In fact, Stellantis has better margins. So, um, yeah, interesting. I mean, the other products, let's just touch upon them quickly. The energy generation and storage and Starlink are interesting products. Uh, they're, they're not a significant part of um, Tesla's business at the moment. Um, the C-3PO robot with the egg touching, the weird egg touching. Um, we were told in the comment section uh, just last quarter when we said Tesla had, had had a disaster that you know the robots were just around the corner. And I mean, I've watched a recent update of the video, and um, I mean, it looks like an old man walking around in a dirty nappy. Uh, and then the pictures of it, like fingering eggs and picking them up and putting them into the bowl next to it, was was laugh a minute bad to me. I mean, if you think that product's coming out in the next decade, um, I think you're nuts. Um, so yeah, I uh, I thought this was a really unimpressive report. I find Musk to be a rather unimpressive person. I think he takes a lot of credit for others' work. And um, I yeah I. I'm not interested in buying the stock here, Steve. I did actually run it through my reverse DCF just for a little bit of uh, interest and then realized um, that Brian Feroldi had done the same thing. Um, Brian Feroldi said that it needs between 30 and 35% growth in its free cash flow to justify its valuation. And he said that was bonkers um, and it's very unlikely to achieve that. 
but he's holding it, Steve, which feels like an incredible, uh, at least strange decision to to come to. Uh, I don't think Tesla grows its free cash flow at 35% from here. Too risky for me here. I I don't think it does it. If you think it does it, it's a buy here. I don't think it does. Steve? I don't think it does either. I To me, the Tesla share price has behaved backwards to the last two big announcements from what I saw of it. So you had Elon Musk, um, who, yeah, explained that Tesla is not a car company. It is an AI and robotics company that looks a lot like a car company, uh, or looks to some people like a car company, like the day before they announced their car deliveries, um, which you know, it's, it's quite rare that AI and robotics companies do that. But... Um, Nonetheless, uh, and then he went on to say that he wants basically another, well, twice what he currently has stake in the thing, or or you'll take his AI and robotics things and go somewhere else uh, with them, or he feels uncomfortable doing it without 25% ownership. To me, this was a huge red flag. I thought this was terrible news uh, for Tesla as a company. The market didn't think so. The market thought, eh, uh, this will blow over uh, or something. And maybe they're right, but... When I looked at 212, it's just saying, people saying, great, he's going to buy more of the stock. It's going to go up. And I thought, he's not saying it because he's going to buy it. I mean, he can go and buy it if he wants it and didn't have to tell anybody about that. He's saying, I think, give it to me. Um, and he compared himself to the kind of large institutional owners and said, well, they don't show up for work. So, so my compensation package should include more than that. Make of that what you will. But that's not a way of saying... Uh, and therefore, I intend to go and buy twice as many Tesla shares as I currently have. Um, that's a way of saying, I think, give them to me uh, or else all this AI robotic stuff, which is, I think, correctly a part of every bull case, because it has to be because the bulls even admit it doesn't make any sense without the AI and robotic stuff. Um, if you think that uh, Dojo and so on and so forth are going away, um, you think that's a big problem. Uh, I think for Tesla, actually, the kind of earnings report that I saw here, um, the main headline I had attached to this was cyclical company doing cyclical things. I'm like, okay, um, uh, this happens, and then the stock went plowing south on that news, which I was surprised by because I didn't think it was that good. I get the thought about the earnings call that you want some better guidance from someone coming through, and if you're now worried about Elon Musk because you think he's planning on taking his AI stuff elsewhere. Uh, and has therefore given up um, or has decided he's not going to particularly be interested in guiding for Tesla. I thought he stopped doing earnings calls. I must have dreamed that. But um, that might cause you to worry. But I don't know. Numbers here I thought were fine in terms of the business. Just no reason you should pay that much for it. Yeah, agree. There's just a couple of things, really. There was... Um... What Musk's essentially saying is that he sold his shares, he sold some of his ownership to to buy uh, or or, or uh, basically uh, used it to uh, take on mm-hmm. debt to buy X. What he's essentially asking is for you to replenish that uh, that um, ownership in in the business, uh, but you don't get any X. And if you don't um, if you don't replenish it, then he's going to go and take his ball home, and you're not going to play with it either, um, which is. That's a dangerous situation to be in. Now, I think um, for a company that doesn't have much uh, shareholder confidence at the moment, I mean, evidently by the way the share price is behaving, um, to take that attitude is is particularly uh, it's particularly taxing to me as somebody on the outside who isn't absolutely uh, sort of blinded to to how that how that comes across. But the other thing was 
the the obfuscation that comes from Tesla. They kind of every time they do they do shit, they put out something like, um, "Oh look, um, there is." The, the, but don't look at these results. Here's a robot touching an egg, and um, they they did it this time with a look. I'm sorry, we did so bad. Um, you know, with, with this unlimited growth narrative um that we we uh, we we made you talk about um yeah we only grew at three percent and we only did that because we sold the cars for a hell of a lot cheaper than we used to um but the, the, <laughs> the um the, it's just the obfuscation uh, of this like but don't worry we've got a uh, an under thirty thousand pound car coming out you don't need to worry about it and it's always that kind of like kicking the can down the road approach that we get with them and and it's and it's great from a point of view of if you're looking at somebody like uh, you know a senior management at Tesla who's desperately trying to offload his shares, um, you know at, at a high price, then then that constant like you know don't worry about the fact that we're actually doing really bad. Uh, look at this uh, shiny new thing in the background, and then like while while you're pointing the head that way, go into the executive quick sell twenty thousand shares and get your money out before it gets you know before this guy realizes but how long can this go on for before people sort of look at this company and say okay um this is a car company uh it's a car company that's performing okay uh it's in a cyclical downturn at the moment the energy generation and services businesses are fairly interesting but they're very small uh they're growing at decent rates but they're not going to change the overall landscape for this tesla business anytime soon and you're uh, illustrious leader is threatening to take the two big growth engines that potentially are in the future away from you and i don't see how that's a situation that any shareholder looks at and says still in elon we trust this unlimited demand thing uh i went back over the investor presentation in 2023 and i was i was going to try and not get cross about this but the <sighs> It feels to me like these are the words of someone who doesn't know what those words mean. Uh, so what he said was, there's unlimited demand for Teslas. The issue is affordability, uh, which is that people can't afford to buy them. Uh, prices are too high. We need to try and bring our production costs down even more. Um, okay, uh, but there is no one who doesn't want a Tesla. Firstly, it's false, but um, nonetheless, uh, that's true of nearly everything, isn't it? I mean, it's like saying there's unlimited demand in the housing markets, because if I could build the things for 100 quid and sell them for 105, there's no one who wouldn't buy one. Uh, no one's not buying a house for 105 quid. I mean, of course, there's uh, the demand, the limit on demand for nearly everything that is in some way desirable is, is price. Um, the issue is, yeah, that's kind of the problem. And uh, the fact that you can't, it's very hard to make these things at a price such that everyone can and wants to afford them loop us back to the LVMH thing for the moment where I pointed out a bunch of stuff that I think I can afford, but very much don't want to uh, in this case. I mean, it's not because the demand isn't there. If someone offered me the watch for a tenner, I'd take it. Uh, that doesn't mean there's unlimited demand for Tag Heuer watches um, any more than there's unlimited demand for anything uh from what i can see of it so the unlimited demand thing was sort of um slightly bewildering uh to me here it looked like he sort of started off on something and then wasn't quite sure um we will see uh people say confusing things about tesla's production costs their gross margin held up well apparently at 17 percent um it doesn't sound massively inspiring but it was a big point that people were uh looking for on the kind of positive side so ah uh, there we go we had a go at tesla we tried 
Um, let's knock it off there, shall we, Steve? Sounds good, Steve. The, the last time we did Tesla, Steve, it was a most hated video we've ever put out. And the ironic thing is all the things we said in that video have continued to be true. Yeah, it's nice to continue to be uh, breaking our own uh, records here. Anyway, thank you all very much for uh listening we will be back same time next week with um probably some more positive stuff but almost certainly some more earning stuff see you next week bye for now